You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Joe and Lai, to me, was the, the smartest diplomat of any I ever met. I thought he was really brilliant. And um, so he got that. When, when Henry was making his secret trip from Pakistan to... Um, to Beijing, um, I was having a um, conference of editors in New Orleans uh, with Southern editors and uh, with five cabinet officers and the president. president that night, while Henry was flying, uh, talked about China. But there, it was during cocktail hour. Nobody paid much attention. Nobody wrote anything. But the USIA, Voice of America, picked up what Nixon was saying and sent that, and sent that out and... Uh, when, when Kissinger arrived in Beijing, I'm told, Joan Lai presented the text of what Nixon had said. A man can be destroyed, but not defeated. This is a classic quote from Ernest Hemingway. This writer, who created so many enduring works, has left a mark that still touches us in today's world. Hi, I'm James from the UK. Hi, I'm Lee Jun from Chongqing. But James, you might not know that Hemingway has a lasting affinity to Chongqing. 80 years ago, in April 1941, he brought his newly-wedded wife Martha to visit the war-stricken city of Chongqing. During the short stay, lasting a mere 10 days, and he was invited by a mysterious individual to a secret meeting. Following a windy road behind the top chaunching attraction of Leeds about Light Rail Station, you come to New Jarling Road. According to historical records, 80 years ago at 18 New Jarling Road, Hemingway and his wife stayed at this hotel, the Jarling Hotel. The local residents tell us that the original Jarling Hotel has been replaced by an ordinary residential block. However, this hand-drawn picture by an architect of Chongqing University gives us a feeling of what the bustling Jarling Hotel used to be like in its heyday. Receiving such high esteem from Jiang Kai-shek in Chongqing was not unexpected on the part of Hemingway and his wife. 
What they didn't expect, however, was that they would receive an invitation from the CPC Southern Bureau for a secret meeting. And the invitee was none other than the head of the CPC Southern Bureau, Zhou Wenlai. Zhou Wenlai regarded the opportunity to speak the CPC position to an international audience as extremely important. So he saw it as imperative to find Hemingway and explain the CPC position in a face-to-face -face meeting. Once relations between the CPC and Kuomintang broke down, the KMT began to monitor every movement of the CPC. So this meeting had to take place at a secret location. When she returned to her accommodation, Martha told Hemingway what she had just experienced. Hemingway was delighted to hear this and immediately agreed to meet with Zhou Enlai. This is number 50 Zhongshan 4th Road at Zhengjiayan, where Zhou Enlai used to live and work during his time in Chongqing, and this building came to be known as Zhou Mansion. After agreeing to meet, Hemingway and his wife Martha went out by themselves and after checking they won't be followed by agents, they took an indirect road to this place and met with Joe Online. The meeting took place in a meeting room. Hemingway spoke about the war of residents in Northeast Canton and his impressions of Chongqing. Well, John Lai talked about the domestic and international situation as well as a future path for China. This unusual meeting lasted for over an hour, during which Zhou Enlai made a great impression on Hemingway and his wife. Hemingway himself wrote afterwards that Zhou Enlai spoke in a manner that everyone he met in Chongqing were understanding of the CPC position on everything that had taken place. During the War of Resistance, Zhou Enlai worked actively as he met with Soviet Ambassador Alexander Panyushkin, US Army General Joseph Stilwell of the China-India-Burma War Zone. He also had close correspondence with American journalists like Hannah Strong and Harrison Foreman. Thanks to such active and thorough relations in international diplomacy, the Chinese people won great sympathy and support from the international community as the CPC opened up a new level in international relations. Well, good evening. I'm delighted to welcome you to this year's ST Lead Lecture. My name is Fred Logeval, and I'm on the faculty uh, here at Harvard, both here at the Kennedy School and in the History Department. And I'm just delighted to have this opportunity to introduce our speaker, who is a friend of mine going back about 25 years. And I think our speaker this year is perfect uh, for this, for this uh, category. Chen Zhen is... Distinguished Global Network Professor of History at NYU and NYU Shanghai, so both 
both of the NYU campuses. <clears throat> he is also Hu Shi Professor History Emeritus, um, and from 2005 to 2015, the inaugural holder of the Michael Zack Chair of History for U.S.-China Relations at Cornell University, and also a Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. And it was at Cornell that we were actually dear colleagues uh, for uh, a time until I came here. Chen Zhen mostly went to NYU, but we have that Cornell connection. Before he was at Cornell, he was a professor at the University of Virginia at UVA. Uh, many publications, I will only list a, a few of them, China's Road to the Korean War, The China Challenge in the 21st Century, uh, subtitled Implications for U.S. Foreign Policy, and a book that I think is an absolute gem, one of the truly landmark studies in the historiography of the Cold War, which is Mao's China and the Cold War. If you have not read that particular book, I urge you to to do so. And what he's currently at work on and what he's going to talk about tonight is a major biography of Zhou Enlai to be published both in Chinese and in English. So in the next eight to ten minutes, I promise, I will be giving a very, very brief description of Zhou's life and career, especially the role that he played in shaping China's tortoise path, very tortoise path toward a prolonged rise. Zhou was born in 1898 when China was in deep national crisis. He died in 1976 when China had emerged as a recognized world power. But China still had many problems at that time. Among them, one thing was that China was still in the later stage of the Maoist Cultural Revolution. Zhou lived through China's revolutionary era. He and his comrades made the era. They were also remade by the era. His flaws, therefore, also epitomized many of the challenges, dilemmas, and the paradoxes of that era. When Zhou was a young student, he repeatedly highlighted a lifetime motto of his, to see China rise high again in the world. This was the main reason for him later to become a communist. Since the mid-1920s, Zhou had become a leader, a top leader of the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP continues serving as a Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee member in the next half century. He was the People's Republic of China's premier for 27 years, including 10 years as its foreign minister. He controlled the CCP's and the PRC's administrative and executive apparatus. And also he had a very high military seniority. So he had huge influence, although he did not have any military position after um, the mid-1950s in the Chinese military. Further, also very little known, he was also the CCP's biggest spy master. <laughs> <laughs> 
Internationally, he was the CCP's and PRC's diplomatic face. Among his many achievements, there was the Geneva Accord on Indochina of 1954. He was also a main actor as Afro-Asian Conference at Bandung of 1955. He was a main author of the Five Principles of the Peaceful Coexistence, and I would like to emphasize he was also a chief author. Of the Chinese-American Shanghai Communique of 1972, and I will argue, I believe, that entering the 21st century, that document is still basic and fundamental, with a major role to play in the 21st century, not just the Chinese-American relations, but also international politics. Dr. Kissinger, Henry Kissinger. Whose many excellent qualities does not include something called modesty, as we all know. He says about Zhou Enlai, "In some 60 years of public life, I have encountered no more compelling figure than Zhou Enlai." Yes, that's, this is by Dr. Henry Kissinger. As a person, Zhou was not corrupt, unlike Mao. He was not a womanizer. There's no sexual scandal entangling him, and also no evidence to in- indicate that, as someone claims, he was a gay. There's nothing wrong for anyone to be a gay, but this claim is with its own unspoken political implication. I'm not going to go into details of it. Zhou was a communist, a devoted communist. For him, like many of his comrades, he embraced communism because he was genuinely ashamed of China's backwardness and the low and powerless position in the international、uh, community dominated by Western and Japanese imperialism. He envisioned that the communist revolution would not only bring about China's national liberation, but also transform Chinese people's hearts and minds, leading up to their rebirth and new birth. This is what, what Yang Zhonglai wrote in his diary. For him, same as many of his comrades, his comrades, a communist revolution was the only way toward a new China that would rise high in a new world. In 1949, Mao announced at the moment of the victory of the Chinese Communist Revolution that we, the Chinese, have stood up. This was a huge legitimacy statement of the new China, which is still playing a fundamental role in the current Chinese leadership's effort to try to legitimize the current one-party reign system there. Zhou was standing next to Mao, listening to Mao and nodding his head. Mao substantiated the statement: "We, the Chinese, have stood up by establishing two fundamental missions for his continuous revolution: to change China into a land of universal justice, equality, and prosperity, and to revive China's central position in the international community." Meaning, as Zhou said. To see China rise high again in the world, the results of Mao's reign of 27 years 
were highly paradoxical. On the one hand, China, as a modern state of multinationalities, seemed to have been consolidated, although now it is continuously facing challenge. China's age-old landlord, gentry, social structure had been destroyed. Be good or not be so good. It had happened. The Chinese people's life expectancy and education level had been significantly improved. China's industrial, modern industrial foundation had been established. However, in the name of continuous revolution, Mao also brought a series of huge disasters to China and the Chinese people, especially the Great Leap Forward, Great Famine, and the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. For me, the most serious consequence of Mao's continuous revolution endeavor was that for pursuit, the moral high ground that the human race had never reached, it collapsed the Chinese moral norms and bottom line. This is the most troublesome and long-lasting barrier hindering China's rise, as I view it. Joe worked with Mao all the time. His extraordinary administrative and executive capacity was essential for effective governance in Mao's China, especially at the time that Mao's radical political and social transformative plans had brought some of the darkest moments in Chinese modern history. And Zhou was with Mao. Therefore, some call Zhou a Mao enabler, who enabled Mao to do those things. But Zhou was never an internalized Maoist. The most difficult part in my study, indeed, is how to define the relationship between Zhou and Mao. Compared with Mao, it is not wrong to call Zhou more a man of action than a man of ideas. Yet, he was not a person want of visions and ideas of his own. Mao put revolution above everything else. Zhou emphasized development and production. Mao looked down upon intellectuals. Zhou regarded intellectuals as a main force for promoting socialist revolution and socialist reconstruction. Zhou once had even had a discursive encounter with Mao on a very fundamental issue, the relationship between individual and collective. In summer 1957, when Mao launched the anti-rightist movement, he defined democratic centrism, in Chinese, as people know how essential it is for the Communist Party to carry out this democratic-centric system. And Mao said, it should be a lively political atmosphere combining centrism and democracy, discipline and freedom, unity of will and personal ease of mind. Mao put all those collective variables first. A few weeks later, Zhou delivered a different definition of democratic centrism. Zhou says, it should be a system under which there will be 
democracy and the centrism, freedom and discipline, full development of individuality and the unity of will, intentionally or not, to put democracy, freedom, and full development of individuality ahead of those collective variables. While some culture and Mao enabler, I say that he was also a Mao controller. Indeed, under Mao, during Mao's times, for sure, only by becoming a Mao enabler would he be able to be a Mao controller. A unique quality of Joe's is was that he was extremely capable of using Mao's own words, as well as the supreme principles that Mao also found the need to follow to come up with restrictions as out on Mao's absolute authoritarian power. In the age of Trump and Xi Jinping. I wish we could have a own life, either in Beijing's Zhongnanhai or Trump's White House. No wonder Mao never fully trusted Zhou until the last years of Zhou's life, when Zhou was already terminally ill. Mao used a Zhou Kissinger scandal to pursue to purge him, claiming that Zhou had sold China's self. Respect a sovereignty rights to the Americans. Joe barely survived the purge, but for this purge and also for other reasons, he did not outlive Mao. So I write in the Joe biography. Let me conclude using this quote: When Mao, the great helmsman, was leading the giant ship of China into thunderous storms, Joe, as the ship's Chief officer tried his very best to make sure the ship would not sink. Moreover, China did not only survive the dangerous moment, but also was able to move forward on paths of the country's prolonged rise. For all of this, Zhou should be duly credited. Thank you very much. So. You want to take those? Interesting.、Um, I'm going to resist the urge to connect this story to more recent times. I wanted、yeah. to ask you about Deng Xiaoping. Yes.、Uh, we could talk about Xi Jinping, but I'm going to rely on、uh, on maybe one or two people in the audience to 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 connect this story to some of the issues we face today. Today, I do have one final question for you before we open it up. Yes. And you. More than anybody will be able to answer this question. Thank you. So the it's the old question about what Joe and Lai meant when he was asked about the French Revolution and the significance of the French Revolution. Many of you know this, and Joe' perfect answer was, "It's too soon to tell." And so, Mike, what is your interpretation of his meaning? There is a suggestion that maybe he thought he was being asked about Paris, 1968, and about some of the more recent developments. I want to believe that he was actually referring to the French Revolution. Yes, you're correct. You tell us. Yeah, correct. You know, this is such an 
I think Joe was thinking about himself. When he was asked the question, I checked all the transcript of Joe's, you know, conversations, meetings with Henry Kissinger, with Richard Nixon, and other. I did not find it. And the people probably know that、uh, Nixon's interpreter on the American side is Ambassador Charles Freeman, and he said it was not about the French Revolution of 1789, but about the French student rights of 1968.、Yeah. And I talked to. Joe's assistants and Chinese interpreters—they say no. That has <laughs> greatly belittled John Lai. But no matter what the case, Joe was thinking about himself and also the fate of the Chinese Communist Revolution. How would it be? It's too soon to tell. So, in my writing of Joe biography, let me share this with you. I think about what Joe's legacy and historical position would be. Deng Xiaoping certainly had glorified the most positive part of Joe's legacies, but we are now facing another historical changing、uh, turning point. I increasingly feel that Joe's legacies and his historical positions really depend upon which part of his legacies. Will be glorified. Will be magnified. So it's too, it's too soon, soon to tell. To tell. Too、yes. soon to tell. It's too soon to tell.、Um, Thank you. So、uh, I'm just curious to hear your opinion on、uh, what do you think、um, would Joe say if he were able to see China's development today, and、uh, is that something that he pictured when he、uh, thought about China's role in the future in today's international order? He would be delighted. Hold on. He would be delighted. You're gonna. You're gonna I have answered that question. Fleshed. Okay.、Uh, Fleshed out. <laughs> yes.、Um, my name is Lily Shen, and I'm not a student here. I used to go to Peking University, actually.、Um, right now, I'm a regular attendee because I'm um、uh, just a massive fan of the. Uh, the Kennedy School's public events, and it's just really thought-provoking. Thank you. So my question is:、uh, you mentioned that you believe Joe played an instrumental role in the prolonged rise of、uh, the China's rise, and I just wonder: is during his later years,、um, are there anything? Were there any things that he did that make you believe? He was the architect of the later, the prolonged economic rise of China, or did he share anything, share his vision or plan with Deng that played a role in such development?、Uh, especially when Deng, the the、um, the inflection point of his policy that black cat or white cat doesn't matter which. Color it is. If you can catch a mouse, you are a good cat, and that really said, you know, put aside the ideology aside a little bit, and to really focus on what works in China. So I wonder if that he shared、um, uh, that was done as well, or that was completely independently coming out of done. Thank you.、Uh, thank you so very much. Actually, I can combining my answer to this one with yours. I think Joe would be delighted. How do I know? You know, talking about、uh, Joe and Deng's later reform and opening, you know, project. Do people know when the Chinese-American happened?、Uh, opening happened in 1962, and there was also a major, major project 
initiated and launched under Joe's uh, direction called the 4-3 project. Basically, what China was then doing was to spend a total of $4.3 billion for importing whole set factory equipment and advanced technology from Western capitalist countries. And this is huge. And when the project was completed, right around the time of China's launch of China's reformed opening project, the total uh, money the fund spent on the project was $5.7 billion. And this is 1970s dollars. And how could you do this. You know, this is not just importation of technology. This was also a direct contact with something called world market. You need something called credibility, credibility, credit to do the purchasing, right? And further, one of the Joe's very last uh, public speech was about the launch of the so-called four modernizations project, which he introduced in early 1975. Joe was very ill, and he did not deliver his whole speech. He could not finish reading it, but he insisted upon reading this paragraph. By the end of the 20th century, China would emerge as a country on the basis of four modernizations. So, um, that's why Seiju would be, have been delighted to see China had reached the stage, and it, indeed, in many senses, China has risen high. But let me condition this by saying that Joe probably would also have felt concerned, given his own philosophy, that in order for pursuing his own political interest, in the case of China, for China to pursue political interest, interest, he avoided trying to compete for the number two position in the party leadership. Would he be comfortable for China to compete for the number one position? Or even number two position in the world? I doubt. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show.
1971, uh, uh, we interviewed uh, uh, Premier Zhou Enlai, uh, and it was the first interview, interview uh, that he gave uh, to uh, an American uh, correspondent uh, since the uh, opening uh, uh, of China uh, to the United States and uh, more widely um, to the West. The principal subject uh, at uh, the interview uh, was uh, the question of uh, relations uh, with uh, Taiwan. And it was at that interview that he enunciated uh, the policy for the first time publicly that would be the accepted uh, policy uh, of uh, Beijing towards uh, Taiwan. And that is, uh, he emphasized the importance of the peaceful attraction uh, of uh, uh, Taiwan uh, to uh, the motherland, uh, to uh, the uh, to the mainland, uh, and uh, he felt that uh, this could be done uh, uh, without uh, without violence uh, through the development of uh, good uh, uh, exchanges between Taiwan and uh, uh, and uh, the, the motherland, uh, and he expressed his um, conviction that uh, eventually that would happen, that uh, uh, Taiwan would once again be reunited uh, uh, with uh, uh, the, the, the mainland. And that, uh, fundamentally, is the same policy which is being pursued uh, by the Beijing uh, government today with the uh, exchanges which are being taken, taking, uh, the exchanges which are taking place across the Straits uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, tourism, in terms of uh, trade, to some extent the exchange of, uh, of uh, students, uh, all of these things uh, are, are really uh, in keeping with the dream that uh, Premier Zhou Enlai had for reuniting uh, Taiwan once again uh, with uh, the motherland, the mainland. Well, I first met uh, Premier Zhou in 1971. My father had met him earlier in Chongqing, and they'd become uh, very good friends. And he invited us to China uh, in 1971, and we came, and he had a dinner for us in the Great Hall of People. And one of the things he said was um, that China's biggest problem in the future will be pollution. And I think uh, he was absolutely correct. And uh, he had uh, a lot of um, very interesting and good advice, which I think in the future would be, uh, it's hard to say what he would be thinking uh, these you know, decades later. He also warned about the dangers of the uh, Three Gorges Dam. To evaluate uh, and to recall uh, Chairman Mao's uh, uh, thinking and his hopes and his uh, dreams, uh, you have to go back uh, to uh, the period before his death in 1976, and it was a time uh, of uh, the after the uh, conclusion of the uh, of the Civil War uh, and the upheaval of the uh, uh, Cultural uh, uh, Revolution. Um, 
The most important thing uh, for Chairman Mao was uh, the consolidation uh, of China, uh, and that was uh, to drive out uh, the foreign concessions on the East Coast, to drive out uh, Russian uh, presence in the Northeast, in the Manchuria, and also in, in, in Xinjiang, uh, and to consolidate uh, uh, the country and make sure that it would have a safe and a secure future. Of course, his, uh, his uh, dream uh, also included uh, uh, reuniting uh, uh, Taiwan uh, with, uh, with, with the motherland. Uh, he differed to some extent uh, from Zhou Enlai only in the sense uh, that uh, he was uh, somewhat more impatient than, uh, than Zhou Enlai. And he thought in terms of uh, a militant retaking uh, of the island. And of course, uh, he was prepared uh, uh, to, uh, to do that. Uh, uh, and uh, Chen Yi had massed his third army in the 50s. Uh, uh, for uh, a, a, a massive invasion of the island, uh, when with the outbreak of uh, the Korean War, uh, the United States interposed uh, the Seventh uh, Fleet. Uh, however, uh, I think that um, if he were uh, alive today, he, he would uh, uh, be quite uh, uh, satisfied uh, with the progress that is being made in terms of reuniting, reuniting uh, uh, Taiwan uh, uh, with uh, uh, the mainland. So I think Joe and I would be very pleased by what's happening. I think Mao Zedong would be uh, alarmed, a little disturbed, because the um, principles of uh, his vision of China uh, with the common with with the market economy, I think he might feel he's losing some of the revolutionary principles that the country that his it was originally built on. But I believe that Joe and Lai would have, on the contrary, been very pleased. In the same hall of the people where Mao Zedong received me, the Premier of the People's Republic, Zhou Enlai, made some New Year affirmations of his own. To my questions in English, the Premier gave direct replies in Chinese. Nanking? Nanking. Premier Joe, I, I find such a sharp contrast for the better between conditions in China today and those conditions I saw here in 1960 that I wonder if I would be right in assuming that China's economic level, general economic level, is now the highest in our history. 
的这个调整工作已经基本完成了。嗯，在这个农业的产量上。Yes. Uh, it can now be said that our national economy has achieved an all-round turn for the better, and the work of readjustment has, in the main, been completed. The agricultural output this year surpassed the peak figure at the end of the first five-year plan, and the output of grains and cotton, in particular, increased considerably as compared with last year. The industry. Great progress has been made, not only in the quantity, but also in the variety and quality of the products. And it can be said that an all-round leap forward has been made in industry, in science and technology, has reached quite a remarkable level. You can see what has been achieved in culture and education, from the reforms in the drama. And the development of education. As for market supply, you have seen that daily necessities are plentiful. It is true there still is scarcity in the supply of cotton cloth, but the growth of cotton production over the past two years has provided us. With great possibilities for increasing the output of cloth. At the same time, the production of chemical fibers is also increasing. We are confident that in the course of the third five-year plan, the supply of clothing for the people will further grow. The present situation in our national economy is one of an all-round turn for the better and of an all-round growth. This will be conducive to an upsurge in our industrial and agricultural production next year, and has also laid a good basis for the third five-year plan. You will soon uh, be having session of the National People's Congress, and I presume that you'll be making a report on all these matters. Uh, I wonder if you could give me some uh, indication of the main points of that report. The National People's Congress convenes on December 21st. It will be the first session of the Third National People's Congress. On behalf of the government, I shall make a report to the National People's Congress on the work of the government. It will probably touch upon the following three aspects. First, socialist construction. Second, socialist revolution. And third, international questions. Do you see any possibility of uh, improvement in Sino-American relations? Uh, but secondly, do you think it would be useful under present circumstances to have some exchange of scientists and um, scholars? Two and the organization, and the two 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 and the two
，这个中美关系的改进呢，必须从，呃，原则上先解决。嗯，就是还是。In order to improve Sino-American relations, we must start with matters of principle and not with side issues. At the Sino-American ambassadorial talks in Warsaw, we always put forward the following two points of principle. One is that agreement should be reached between China and the United States on peaceful coexistence on the basis of the five principles. And the other, that the United States must withdraw all its armed forces from Taiwan and the Taiwan Straits. Once agreement can be reached on these two points of principle, other questions will be settled rather easily. Otherwise, the mere tackling of side issues will not solve the fundamental problem. The Warsaw talks have already been going on for more than nine years, but the United States has all along refused to agree on these two points of principle. The United States follows others in saying that it too is for peaceful coexistence, but when China calls for it, the United States refuses. Doesn't this prove the hypocrisy of the words of the U.S. government? As for the question of visits to China by some individuals, no agreement is possible at the present time either. Those whom we welcome, the U.S. government won't allow to come. While those it wants to send to China are not welcome by us. In a word, when questions of principle are not settled, there is deadlock even on minor issues. Perhaps you are an exception. We welcome you, and the U.S. State Department recently permitted you to come. Well, Mr. Premier, under uh, these circumstances, the uh, Indication that the uh, United States policy favors creation of an independent Taiwan would seem to remove the possibility, perhaps for many years, of any normalization of Sino-American relations. At the present time, the Chiang Kai-shek clique on Taiwan claims to represent China. Of course, no patriotic Chinese can agree to that. But if there should be someone on Taiwan who is so depraved as to completely follow the beck and call of the United States and serve the needs of U.S. policy, by declaring Taiwan to be a so-called independent political unit and relying on the majority in the United Nations under the manipulation and coercion of the U.S. government, continue to usurp China's lawful seat in the United Nations. I can tell you frankly that not only would it be impossible to improve and to restore Sino-American relations, but what is more, we will have nothing whatsoever to do with the United Nations. If such a situation should arise, 
Sino-American confrontation will not be a question of a few years. It will be of a long duration of we don't know how many years. It will remain that way until the day comes. And I believe the day will come when the United States finds itself no longer able to continue along this path and gives up this policy. Very rapidly, the number of nations that uh, favor restoring China's seat in the UN is increasing. More and more nations now maintain relations with China. It may be that there's a majority already in uh, favor of seating China in the UN. Do you expect to see uh, uh, China's seat restored this year? No. Uh, that is in the present session, 1965. No, no. Do not. That's not possible. Although there are now 50 countries which have recognized us and established diplomatic relations with us, and the number will perhaps increase further, the United States will be able to use various methods to obstruct the restoration of our legitimate rights in the United Nations and prevent the expulsion of the Chiang Kai-shek clique from the United Nations. Therefore, certain that no change will yet take place this year. In the meantime, we have an urgent new factor involved in Sino-American relations, the bomb. Uh, judging from reports published abroad, uh, China's bomb was of a much more sophisticated nature than American ex experts anticipated. I uh, wonder if it would be possible for you to comment on just what it has meant in terms of China's technological and scientific engineering uh, development. American experts have come to the conclusion from the data they collected that the technical level of the atom bomb we exploded is higher than that of the first nuclear tests of the United States, Britain and France. On this matter, the American experts know more than you do, and perhaps also more than I do. <laughs> Neither of us are experts. Sir, uh, tension in Southeast Asia, especially in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, is reaching a critical stage. May I ask, under what circumstances China would render aid to these countries, such as she extended to North Korea? The situation in South Vietnam is linked with the entire Indochina question. And it is precisely on the question of expanding the war in Indochina that the United States is now hesitant. It's always anxious to know China's attitude. China's attitude is very clear. That is, if the United States should run rampant in Indochina, we will definitely not sit idly by. The United States has tasted of the Korean War, and if it wants to wage a Korean-type war in Indochina, it should know what will happen and what the result will be. 
Therefore, the United States may acquaint itself with our attitude simply through our published statements. However, the U.S. government often doesn't believe these statements. It always thinks that our public statements are one thing and what we actually intend to do is another. The United States is always anxious to get some inside information, thinking that only then can decide on its policies. In fact, it doesn't understand that throughout the 15 years since the founding of the People's Republic of China, every word that we have spoken counts. We mean what we say. Unlike them, we don't practice double tactics, saying one thing while doing another. Ours is a socialist state, well responsible to the Chinese people and responsible to the people of the whole world. We live up to our words. I hope we have time for one question on Sino-Soviet relations. Uh, perhaps the most direct one would be, since the fall of uh, Khrushchev, uh, does China still insist that uh, the Soviet Union should not participate in the next Afro-Asian conference? With regard to the forthcoming African-Asian conference, we firmly abide by all the agreements reached at the preparatory meeting for the second Asian-African conference held last April in Jakarta. At that meeting, as in the Bandung Conference, unanimity had to be achieved before agreement on any question could be reached. As for those questions which the majority of the participants did not approve of, or on which no agreement could be reached, they were set aside. The principles of reaching agreement through unanimity and seeking common ground for retaining differences are precisely the Bandung spirit commonly acknowledged by the Asian and African countries. These principles were once again here to at the Jakarta Preparatory Meeting. Well, that's very clear. I have 100 other questions, but I think I will have consumed all the time you have generously allotted me. And I want to thank you very much for a very enlightening interview. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.